Chapter 13 of The Madman and the Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Madman and the Pirate by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter 13. A few days after the discovery of Zeppa by his son, a trading vessel chanced to touch at the island, the captain of which no sooner saw the British man-of-war than he lowered his jig, went aboard in a state of great excitement, and told how that, just two days before, he had been chased by a pirate in latitude so-and-so and longitude something else. A messenger was immediately sent in hot haste to Sugarloaf Mountain to summon Orlando. "'I'm sorry to be obliged to leave you in such a hurry,' said Captain Fitzgerald, as they were about to part. "'But duty calls, and I must obey. "'I promise you, however, either to return here "'or to send your mission vessel for you, if it be available. "'Rest assured that you shall not be altogether forsaken.' "'Having uttered these words of consolation, "'the captain spread his sails and departed, "'leaving Orlando and his father, Warunga, Tomio, Pucci, Ebony, and Roscoe, on Sugarloaf Island. Several days after this, Warunga entered the hut of Ongaloo and sat down. The chief was amusing himself at the time by watching his Prime Minister Waputa playing with little Lippy, who had become a favorite at the palace since Zeppa had begun to take notice of her. I would palaver with the chief, said the missionary. Let Lippy be gone, said the chief. Waputa rolled the brown child unceremoniously out of the hut and composed his humorous features into an expression of solemnity. "'My brother,' continued the missionary, "'has agreed to become a Christian and burn his idols?' "'Yes,' replied Ongaloo, with an emphatic nod, "'for he was a man of decision. "'I like to hear what you tell me. "'I feel that I am full of naughtiness. "'I felt that before you came here. "'I have done things that I knew to be wrong, "'because I have been miserable after doing them. "'Yet, when in passion, I have done them again. "'I have wondered why I was miserable. "'Now I know.' You tell me the Great Father was whispering to my spirit. It must be true. I have resisted him, and he made me miserable. I deserve it. I deserve to die. When any of my men dare to resist me, I kill them. I have dared to resist the Great Father, yet he has not killed me. Why not? You tell me he is full of love and mercy even to his rebels. I believe it. You say he sent his son Jesus to die for me, and to deliver me from my sins. It is well. I accept this Saviour and all my people shall accept him. My brother's voice makes me glad, returned Warunga, but while you can accept this savior for yourself, it is not possible to force other people to do so. Not possible, cried the despotic chief, with vehemence. Do you not know that I can force my people to do whatever I please? At least I can kill them if they refuse. You cannot do that, and at the same time be a Christian. But, resumed Angaloo, with a look of, so to speak, fierce perplexity, I can at all events make them burn their idols. True, but that would only make them hate you in their hearts, and perhaps worship their idols more earnestly in secret. No, my brother, there is but one weapon given to Christians, but that is a sharp and powerful weapon. It is called love. We must win others to Christ by voice and example. We may not drive them. It is not permitted. It is not possible. The chief cast his frowning eyes on the ground, and so remained for some time, while the missionary silently prayed. It was a critical moment. The man, so long accustomed to despotic power, could not easily bring his mind to understand the process of winning men. He did indeed know how to win the love of his wives and children, for he was naturally of an affectionate disposition, 
but as to winning the obedience of warriors or slaves, the thing was preposterous. Yet he had sagacity enough to perceive that while he could compel the obedience of the body, or kill it, he could not compel the obedience of the soul. How can I, he said at last, with a touch of indignation still in his tone, I, a chief and a descendant of chiefs, stoop to ask, to beg, my slaves to become Christians? It may not be. I can only command them. Woe! exclaimed Waputa, unable to restrain his approval of the sentiment. You cannot even command yourself, Angalu, to be a Christian. How, then, can you command others? It is the great father who has put it into your heart to wish to be a Christian. If you will now take his plan, you will succeed. If you refuse and try your own plan, you shall fail. Stay, cried the chief, suddenly laying such a powerful grasp on Marunga's shoulder that he winced. Did you not say that part of his plan is the forgiveness of enemies? I did. Must I, then, forgive the Raturans if I become a Christian? Even so. Then it is impossible. What, forgive the men whose forefathers have tried to rob my forefathers of their mountain since our nation first sprang into being? Forgive the men who have for ages fought with our fathers and tried to make slaves of our women and children, though they always fail because they are cowardly dogs. Forgive the Raturans? Never. Impossible. With man, this is impossible. With the great father, all things are possible. Leave your heart in his hands, Angulu. Don't refuse his offer to save you from an unforgiving spirit as well as from other sins, and that which to you seems impossible will soon become easy. No, never, reiterated the chief with decision, as he cut further conversation short by rising and stalking out of the hut, closely followed by the sympathetic Waputa. Warunga was not much depressed by this failure. He knew that truth would prevail in time, and did not expect that the natural enmity of man would be overcome at the very first sound of the gospel. He was therefore agreeably surprised when, on the afternoon of that same day, Ongoloo entered the hut which had been set apart for him and the two Ratinga chiefs, and said, Come, brother, I have called a council of my warriors. Come, you shall see the working of the great father. The missionary rose at once and went after the chief with much curiosity, accompanied by Tomio and Buchi, Zeppa and his son, with Ebony and the pirate, being still in the mountains. Angalu led them to the top of a small hill on which a sacred hut or temple stood. Here the prisoners of war used to be slaughtered, and here the orgies of heathen worship were wont to be practiced. An immense crowd of natives, indeed the entire tribe except the sick and infirm, crowned the hill. This, however, was no new sight to the missionary, and conveyed no hint of what was pending. The crowd stood in two orderly circles, the inner one consisting of the warriors, the outer of the women and children. Both fell back to let the chief and his party pass. As the temple hut was open at one side, its interior, with the horrible instruments of execution and torture, as well as skulls, bones, and other ghastly evidences of former murder, was exposed to view. On the center of the floor lay a little pile of rudely carved pieces of timber, with some loose coconut fiber beneath them. A small fire burned on something that resembled an altar in front of the hut. The chief, standing close to this fire, cleared his throat, and began an address with the words, Men, warriors, women, and children, listen! And they did listen with such rapt attention that it seemed as if not only ears, but eyes, mouths, limbs, and muscles were engaged in the listening act, for this mode of address, condescending as it did to women and children, was quite new to them, and portended something unusual. Since these men came here, continued the chief, pointing to Warunga and his friends, 
we have heard many wonderful things that have made us think. Before they came, we heard some of the same wonderful things from the great white man, whose head is light, but whose heart is wise and good. I have made up my mind, now, to become a Christian. My warriors, my women, my children, need not be told what that is. They have all got ears and have heard. I have assembled you here to see my gods burned, he pointed to the pile in the temple, and I ask all who are willing to join me in making this fire a big one. I cannot compel your souls. I could compel your bodies, but I will not. He looked round very fiercely as he said this, as though he still had half a mind to kill one or two men to prove his point. And those who stood nearest to him moved uneasily, as though they more than half expected him to do some mischief. But the fierce look quickly passed away, and he went on in gentle, measured tones. Warunga tells me that the book of the Great Father says, Those who become Christians must love each other. Therefore we must no more hate, or quarrel, or fight, or kill, not even our enemies. There was evident surprise on every face, and a good deal of decided shaking of heads, as if such demands were outrageous. Moreover, it is expected of Christians that they shall not revenge themselves, but suffer wrong patiently. The eyebrows rose higher at this. Still more, it is demanded that we shall forgive our enemies. If we become Christians, we must open our arms wide, and take the returns to our hearts. This was a climax, as Angulu evidently intended, for he paused a long time, while loud expressions of dissent and defiance were heard on all sides, though it was not easy to see who uttered them. Now, warriors, women, and children, here I am, a Christian. Who will join me? I will, exclaimed Waputa, stepping forward with several idols in his arms, which he tossed contemptuously into the temple. There was a general smile of incredulity among the warriors, for Waputa was well known to be a time-server. Nevertheless, they were mistaken, for the jester was in earnest this time. Immediately after that, an old, white-headed warrior, bent nearly double with infirmity and years, came forward and acted as Waputa had done. Then, turning to the people, he addressed them in a weak, trembling voice. There was a great silence, for this was the patriarch of the tribe, had been a lion-like man in his youth, and was greatly respected. I join the Christians, he said slowly. Have I not lived and fought for long, very long? Yes, yes, for many voices. And what good has come of it, demanded the patriarch. Have not the men of the mountain fought with the men of the swamp, since the mountain and the swamp came from the hand of the great father? A pause, and again, yes, yes, for many voices. And what good has come of it? Here is the mountain, yonder is the swamp, as they were from the beginning. And what the better are we that the swamp has been flooded, and the mountain drenched with the blood of our fathers? Hatred has been tried from the beginning of time, and has failed. Let us now, my children, try love, as the Great Father counsels us to do. A murmur of decided applause followed the old man's speech, and Ongoloo, seizing him by both shoulders, gazed earnestly into his withered face. Had they been Frenchmen, these two would no doubt have kissed each other's cheeks. If Englishmen, they might have shaken hands warmly. Being Polynesian savages, they rubbed noses. Under the influence of this affectionate act, a number of the warriors ran off, fetched their gods, and threw them on the temple floor. Then Ongoloo, seizing a brand from the fire, thrust it into the loose coconut fiber, and set the pile in a blaze. Quickly the flames leaped into the temple thatch, and set the whole structure on fire. As the fire roared and leaped, Warunga, with Tameo and Buchi, started a hymn. 
it chanced to be one which Zeppa had already taught the people, who at once took it up, and sent forth such a shout of praise as had never before echoed among the palm groves of that island. It confirmed the waverers, and thus, under the influence of sympathy, the whole tribe came that day to be of one mind. The sweet strains, rolling over the plains and uplands, reached the cliffs at last, and struck faintly on the ears of a small group assembled in a mountain cave. The group consisted of Zeppa and his son, Ebony, and the pirate. "'It sounds marvelously like a hymn,' said Orlando, listening. "'Ah, dear boy, it is one I taught the natives when I stayed with them,' said Zeppa. "'But it never reached so far as this before.' Poor Zeppa was in his right mind again. But, oh, how weak and wan and thin the raging fever had left him. Roscoe, who was also reduced to a mere shadow of his former self, listened to the faint sound with a troubled expression, for it carried him back to the days of innocence, when he sang it at his mother's knee. "'That's uncommon strange,' said Ebony. "'Never heard the sound come so far before. Hope to scoundrels no got hold of grog.' "'Shame on you, Ebony, to suspect such a thing,' said Orlando." You would be better employed getting things ready for tomorrow's journey than casting imputations on our hospitable friends. Dar's nothin' to get ready, massa, returned the negro. Everything's prepared to start after breakfast. That's well, and I am sure the change to the seashore will do you good, father, as well as Roscoe. You've both been too long here. The cave is not as dry as one could wish, and then you'll be cheered by the sound of children playing round you. Yes, it will be pleasant to have Lippy running out and in again, said Zeppa. They did not converse much, for the strength of both Zeppa and Roscoe had been so reduced that they could not even sit up long without exhaustion. But Orlando kept up their spirits by prattling away on every subject that came into his mind, and especially of the island of Ratinga. While they were thus engaged, they heard the sound of rapidly approaching footsteps, and next moment Tomio and Bucci bounded over the bushes, glaring and panting from the rate at which they had raced up the hill to tell the wonderful news. "'Everything burnt?' exclaimed Ebony whose eyes and teeth showed so much white that his face seemed absolutely to sparkle. "'Everything! Idols and temple!' repeated the two chiefs, in the Ratinga tongue, and in the same breath. "'And never gwin to fight no more?' asked Ebony, with a grin that might be more correctly described as a split from ear to ear. "'Never more!' replied the chiefs. Next morning the two invalids were tenderly conveyed on litters down the mountainside and over the plain, and before the afternoon had passed away, they found a pleasant temporary resting place in the now Christian village. End of chapter 13